Chapter Fourteen of Hoof and Claw. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Roeg Eleven. Hoof and Claw by Charles Roberts. Brannigan's Mary. Brannigan was wanting fresh meat, red meat. Both he and his partner, Long Jackson, were sick to death of trout, stewed apples, and tea. Even fat bacon, that faithful standby, was beginning to lose its charm and to sizzle at them with an unsympathetic note when the trout were frying in it. And when a backwoodsman gets at odds with his bacon, then something has got to be done going noiselessly as a cat in his cowhide larrigans brannigan made his way down the narrow trail between the stiff dark ranks of spruce timber toward the lake as the trail dipped to the shore he caught a sound of splashing and stopped abruptly motionless as a stump to listen his trained ears interpreted the sound at once moose pulling up water lily roots he muttered to himself with satisfaction edging in among the trunks beside the trail to be better hidden he crept forward with redoubtable caution a few minutes more and a sparkle of sunlight flashed into his eyes and through the screening spruce branches he caught sight of quiet water there straight before him was a dark young moose cow with a two-month's calf at her side wading ashore through the shadows brannigan raised his rifle and waited till the pair should come within easier range cartridges are precious when one lives a five days tramp from the nearest settlement and he was not going to risk the wasting of a single shot the game was coming his way and it was the pot, not sport, that he was considering. Now, no one knew better than Brannigan that it was against the law of New Brunswick to shoot a moose at this season, or a cow moose at any season. He knew, also, that to shoot a cow moose was not only illegal, but apt to be extremely expensive, for New Brunswick enforces her game laws with a brusque and uncompromising rigor, and she values a cow moose at something like five hundred dollars brannigan had no stomach for a steak at such price but he had every reason to believe that at this moment there was not a game warden within at least a hundred miles of this unimportant and lonely lake at the head of utanunsis he was prepared to gamble on this supposition Without any serious misgivings, he drew a bead on the ungainly animal as she emerged with streaming flanks from the water and strode up toward the thickets which fringed the white beach. But the calf by her side kept getting in the way, and Brannigan's finger lingered on the trigger, awaiting a clearer shot. Suddenly a dense thicket, half a dozen yards or so distant from the leisurely cow, burst open as with an explosion, and a towering black form shot out from the heart of it. It seemed to overhang the cow for a fraction of a second, 
and then fell forward as if to crush her to the earth. Brannigan lowered his gun, a look of humorous satisfaction flitting over his craggy features. "'Thank you kindly, Mr. Barr,' he muttered. "'There ain't no game-warden on earth as can blame me for that.' But the matter was not as yet near conclusion as he imagined. The cow, apparently so heedless, had been wide awake enough and had caught sight of her assailant from the tail of her eye, just in time to avoid the full force of the attack. She leapt aside, and the blow of those armed paws, instead of breaking her back, merely ripped a long scarlet furrow down her flank. At the same instant she wheeled and struck out savagely with one razor-edged forehoof. The stroke caught the bear glancingly on the shoulder, laying it open to the bone. Had the bear been a young one, the battle thus inauspiciously begun might have gone against him, and those lightning hooves with their far-reaching stroke might have drawn him in blood and ignominy to refuge in a tree. But this bear was old and of ripe experience. As if daunted by the terrific buffet he drew back upon his haunches, seeming to shrink to half his size. The outraged cow came on again, furious and triumphant, thinking to end the matter with a rush. The bear, a wily boxer, parried her next stroke with a blow that broke her leg at the hock. Then his long body shot out again and upward to its full height and crashed down upon her neck with a sick twist that snapped the vertebrae like chalk. She collapsed like a sack of shavings, her long dark muzzle, with red tongue protruding, turned upward and backward, as if she stared in horror at her doom. The bear set his teeth into her throat with a windy grunt of satisfaction. At that moment Brannigan fired. The heavy, soft-nosed bullet crashed home. The bear lifted himself straight up on his hind legs, convulsively pawing at the air, then dropped on all fours, ran round in a circle with his head bent inwards, and fell over on his side. The calf, which had stood watching the fight in petrified amazement, had recovered the use of its legs with a bound at the shock of the report, and shambled off into the woods with a hoarse bleat of terror. Hugely satisfied with himself, Brannigan strode forth from his hiding and examined his double prize. The bear, being an old one, he had no use for as food, now that he was assured of a supply of choice moose venison for he knew by experience the coarseness and rankness of bear meat except when taken young. Touching up the edge of his hunting knife on the sole of his larrigan, he skinned the bear deftly, rolled up the heavy pelt, and tied it with osier withes for convenience in the lugging. Then, after a wash in the lake, he turned back to fetch his partner and the drag, that they might haul the dead moose to the camp and cut it up conveniently at home. Glancing back as he vanished up the trail, he saw the orphaned calf stick its head out from behind a bush and stare at him pathetically. "'Maybe I oughter shoot the little beggar, too,' he mused, "'or the bears'll just get it.' 
but being rather tender-hearted where all young things were concerned he decided that it might be big enough to look after itself and so should have its chance a half hour later when brannigan and his partner hauling the drag behind them briskly got back to the lake they found the calf standing with drooped head beside the body of its mother at their approach it backed off a dozen yards or so to the edge of the bushes and stood gazing at them with soft anxious eyes best knock the calf on the head too while we're about it said long jackson practically it looks fat and juicy but brannigan his own first impulse in regard to the poor youngster now quite forgotten protested with fervor hell he grunted good-naturedly ain't yer got enough fresh meat in this here cow i've foraged fer ye i've kinder promised that there unfortunate orphan she shouldn't be bothered none she's too young yet to fend for herself the bars'll get her if we don't argued long jackson but brannigan's sympathies warm if illogical had begun to assert themselves with emphasis well this here's my shindy long he answered doggedly and i say the poor little critter ought to have her chance she may pull through and good luck to her says i we got all the fresh meat we want oh if you're feeling that way about the orphan tom i ain't kicking none answered jackson spitting accurate tobacco juice upon a small white boulder some ten or twelve feet distant i was only thinking we'd save the youngster a heap of trouble if, if we'd just help her go the way of her ma right now and you ax for her opinion and that impint grunted brannigan tugging the carcass of the moose on to the drag long jackson turned gravely to the calf do you want to be left to the bars and the hands of the big black woods all by your lonesome he demanded the calf thus pointedly addressed backed further into the bush and stared in mournful bewilderment or would you rather be et good and decent and save you a heap of frettin continued long jackson persuasively a bar-winged moose-fly that vicious biter chancing to alight at that moment on the calf's ear she shook her lank head vehemently what did i tell ya demanded brannigan dryly she knows what she wants kinder guess that settles it agreed long jackson with a grin spitting once more on the inviting white boulder then the two men set the rope traces of the drag over the homespun shoulders and grunting at the first tug started up the trail with their load the calf took several steps forward from the thicket and stared in distraction after them she could not understand this strange departure of her mother she bleated several times hoarsely appealing but to no effect then just as the drag with its dark pathetic burden was disappearing around a turn of the trail she started after it and quickly overtook it with her ungainly shambling run all the way to the cabin she followed closely nosing from time to time at the unresponsive figure on the drag brannigan glancing back over his shoulder from time to time 
concluded that the calf was hungry. Unconsciously, he had come to accept the responsibility for its orphaned helplessness, though he might easily have put all the blame upon the bear. But Brannigan was no shirker. He would have scorned any such sophistry. He was worrying now over the question of what he could give the inconveniently confiding little animal to eat. He decided at length upon a thin, lukewarm gruel of cornmeal, slightly salted, and trusted that the sturdiness of the moose stomach might survive such a violent change of diet. His shaggy eyebrows knitted themselves over the problem till Long Jackson, trudging at his side, demanded to know if he'd got the bellyache. This just being the affliction which he was dreading for the calf, Brannigan felt a pang of guilt and vouchsafed no reply. Arriving at the cabin, Jackson got out his knife and was for setting to work at once upon the skinning and cutting up, but Brannigan intervened with prompt decision. "'Don't you be so brash, Long,' said he. "'This here's Mary. Ain't you got no consideration for Mary's feelings?' She's coming to stop with us, and it wouldn't be decent to go cutting up her ma right afore her eyes. You wait till I get her tied up round behind the camp. Then I'll go and fix her some cornmeal gruel, seein's we haven't got no proper milk for her. And he proceeded to unhitch the rope from the drag. Jackson heaved a sigh of resignation, seated himself on the body of the slain cow, and fished up his stumpy black clay pipe from the depths of his breeches pocket. "'So you're going to be Mary's ma, eh?' he drawled with amiable sarcasm. "'If you'd just shave that long Irish lippy urn, Tom, she'd take you for one of her family right enough.' He ducked his head and hoisted an elbow to ward off the expected retort, but Brannigan was too busy just then for any fooling. Having rubbed his hands and sleeves across the hide of the dead mother, he was gently approaching the calf with soft words of caress and reassurance. It is improbable that the calf had any clear comprehension of the English tongue, or even of Brannigan's backwoods variant of it, but she seemed to feel that his tones, at least, were not hostile. She slightly backed away, shrinking and snorting, but at length allowed Brannigan's outstretched fingers to approach her dewy muzzle. The smell of her mother on those fingers reassured her mightily. Being very hungry, she seized them in her mouth and fell to sucking them as hard as she could. "'Poor little Egypt,' said Brannigan, much moved by this mark of confidence. "'He shall have some gruel quick as I can make it.' With two fingers between her greedy lips and a firm hand on the back of her neck, he had no difficulty in leading her around behind the cabin, where he tied her up securely, out of sight of the work of Long Jackson's industrious knife. On Brannigan's gruel, Mary made shift to survive, and even to grow, and soon she was able to discard it in favor of her natural forage of leaves and twigs, from the first she took Brannigan in loco parentis, and, except when tied up, was ever dutifully at his heels. But she had a friendly spirit toward all the world, and met Long Jackson's advances graciously. By the end of autumn she was amazingly long-legged and lank 
and awkward, with an unmatched talent for getting in the way and knocking things over. But she was on a secure footing as a member of the household, petted extravagantly by Brannigan and cordially accepted by Long Jackson as an all-round good partner. As Jackson was wont to say, she was not beautiful, but she had a great head when it came to choosing her friends. As would naturally be supposed, Mary, being a member of the firm, had the free run of the cabin and spent much of her time therein, especially at meals or in bad weather. But she was not allowed to sleep indoors because Brannigan was convinced that such a practice would not be good for her health. At the same time, she could not be left outdoors at night, the night air of the wilderness being sometimes infected with bears, lynxes, and wildcats. A strong pen, therefore, was built for her against the end wall of the cabin, very open and airy, but roofed against the rain and impervious to predatory claws. In this pen she was safe, but not always quite happy, for sometimes in the still dark of the night, when Brannigan and Long Jackson were snoring in their hot bunks within the cabin, she would see an obscure black shape prowling stealthily around the pen, and hungry eyes would glare in upon her through the bars. Then she would bawl frantically in her terror. Brannigan would tumble from his bunk and rush out to the rescue, and the dread black shadow would fade away into the gloom. When winter settled down upon the wilderness, it did so with the rigor intended to make up for several mild seasons. The snow came down and drove and drifted till Mary's pen was buried so deep that a tunnel had to be dug to her doorway. Then set in the long, steady, dry, cold, tonic and sparkling, but so intense that the great trees would crack under it with reports like pistol shots upon the death-like stillness of the night. But all was warmth and plenty at the snow-draped cabin. And Mary, though she had no means of knowing it, was without doubt the most comfortable and contented young moose in all eastern Canada. She was sometimes a bit lonely, to be sure when Brannigan and Jackson were away on their snowshoes, tending their wide circuit of traps, and she was shut up in her pen. At such times, doubtless, her inherited instincts hankered after the companionship of the trodden mazes of the moose-yard. But when her partners were at home, and she was admitted to the cabin with them, such faint stirrings of ancestral memory were clean forgotten. There was no companionship for Mary like that of Brannigan and Long Jackson, who knew so consummately how to scratch her long, waggling ears. But fate, the hag, growing jealous, no doubt, of Mary's popularity, now turned without so much as a snarl of warning and clawed the happy little household to the bone. In some inexplicable, underhanded way, she managed to set fire to the cabin in the night, when Brannigan and Jackson were snoring heavily. They slept, of course, well clad. They awoke choking from a nightmare. With unprintable remarks they leapt from their bunks into the scorching smother of smoke, snatched up instinctively their thick coats and well-greased larrigans, fumbled frantically for the latch, 
and burst out into the icy blessed air mary was bawling with terror and bouncing about her pen as if all the furies were after her brannigan snatched her door open and she lumbered out with a rush knocking him into the snow and went floundering off toward the woods but in a couple of minutes she was back again and stood trembling behind long jackson at first both woodsmen had toiled like demons dashing the snow in armfuls upon the blazing camp but the fire now well established seemed actually to regard the fluffy snow as so much more congenial fuel knowing themselves beaten they drew back with scorched faces and smarting eyes and stood watching disconsolately the ruin of their home mary thrust her long muzzled head around from behind her partners and wagged her ears and stared in the face of a real catastrophe the new brunswick backwoodsman does not rave and tear his hair he sets his teeth and he does a good deal of thinking presently brannigan spoke i notice you come away in a hurry long he remarked dryly did you think to bring anything to eat with ye nary bite responded jackson i've brung along me belt it was kind of tangled up with the coat and me knife is in it all right he felt in the pockets of his coat here's bakey and me pipe and a bit of string and a crooked nail wished i'd known enough to eat a bigger supper last night i hadn't no sort of an appetite i got me an old dudheen said Brannigan, holding up his stubby black clay. And I've got two matches, just two, mind you, and that's all I have got. They filled their pipes thoughtfully and lit them frugally with a blazing splinter from the woodpile. Which is the nearest, queried Jackson, Conroy's upper camp or Gillespie's over to Red Brook? Conroy, sure, said Brannigan. "'How fur would you say?' insisted Jackson, who really knew quite as much about it as his partner. "'In four foot of soft snow and no snowshoes, about ten thousand mile,' replied Brannigan consolingly. "'Then we'd better get a move on,' said Jackson. "'I'm thinking we ain't got no time to waste staring at bonfires,' agreed Brannigan. They turned their backs resolutely and headed off through the night and the snow toward Conroy's camp, many frozen leagues to the southeastward. Mary, bewildered and daunted, followed close at Brannigan's heels, and they left their blazing home to roar and fume and vomit sparks and flare itself out in the unheeding solitude. Accustomed as they were to moving everywhere on snowshoes in the winter, the two woodsmen found it infinitely laborious and exhausting to flounder their way through a four-foot depth of light snow. They took half-mile turns, as near as they could guess, at going ahead to break the way. Once they thought of putting this job upon Mary, but it was not a success. Mary didn't want to go ahead. Only with assiduous propulsion could they induce her to lead, and then her idea of the direction of Conroy's camp seemed quite unformed. Sometimes she would insist upon being propelled sideways, so they soon gave up the plan and let her take her place in the rear, which her humility seemed to demand. 
Both men were in good condition, powerful and enduring. But in that savage cold, their toil ate up their vitality with amazing speed. With plenty of food to supply the drain, they might have fought on almost indefinitely, defying frost and fatigue in the soundness of their physique. But the very efficiency of their bodily machinery made the demand for fuel come all the sooner. They smoked incessantly to fool their craving stomachs, till their pipes chanced to go out at the same time. Much too provident to use one of their two matches, which might later on mean life or death to them, they chewed tobacco till their emptiness revolted at it. Then, envious of Mary, who browsed with satisfaction upon such twigs and saplings as came in her way, they cut young fir branches, peeled them, scraped the white inner bark, and chewed mouthfuls of the shavings. But it was too early for the sap to be working up, and the stuff was no more edible than sawdust. They speedily dropped this unprofitable foraging, pulled their belts tighter, and pushed on with the calm stoicism of their breed. Long Jackson was first to call for a halt. The pallid midwinter dawn was spreading up a sky of icy opal when he stopped and muttered abruptly, "'If we can't eat, we must rest a spell.' Brannigan was for pushing on, but a glance at Jackson's face persuaded him. "'Give us one of them two matches a yarn, Long,' he said. "'If we don't have a fire, we'll freeze with nothing in our stomachs.' "'Nary match yet,' said Jackson doggedly. We'll need them worse later on. Then we'll have to warm ourselves hugging Mary, laughed Brannigan. It was a sound proposition. They scooped and burrowed a deep pit, made Mary lie down, and snuggled close against her warm flanks, embracing her firmly. Mary had been for some time hankering after a chance to rest her long legs and chew her cud, so she was in no way loath. With head uplifted above her reclining partners, she lay there very contentedly, ears alert and eyes half-closed. The only sound on the intense stillness was the slow grind of her ruminating jaws and the deep breathing of the two exhausted men. Both men slept. But, though Mary's vital warmth was abounding and inexhaustible, the still ferocity of the cold made it perilous for them to sleep long. In half an hour, Brannigan's vigilant subconsciousness woke him up with a start. He roused Jackson with some difficulty. They shook themselves and started on again, considerably refreshed, but ravenously hungry. "'Whatever would we have done without Mary?' commented Brannigan. "'Aye, aye,' agreed Jackson." All the interminable day they pushed on stoically through the soft, implacable snow depths, but stopping ever more and more frequently to rest as the cold and the toil together devoured their forces. At night they decided that one of the precious matches must be used. They must have a real fire and a real sleep, if they were to have any chance of winning through to Conroy's camp. They made their preparations with meticulous care, taking no risk. After the deep trench was dug, they made a sound foundation for their fire at one end of it. They gathered birch bark, 
and withered pine shavings and kindlings of dead wood and gathered a store of branches cursing grimly over their lack of an axe then jackson scratched one match cautiously it lit the dry bark curled cracked caught the clear young flame climbed lively through the shavings and twigs just then an owl astonished flew hurriedly through the branches far overhead he stirred a branch heavily snow-laden with a soft swish a tiny avalanche slid down fell upon the fire and blotted it out indignantly the two men pounced upon it and cleared it off hoping to find a few sparks still surviving but it was as dead as last year's mullen stalk comment was superfluous discussion unnecessary fire that night they must have they scooped a new trench clear in the open they used the last match and they built a fire so generous that for a while they could hardly endure its company in the trench mary indeed could not endure it so she stayed outside they smoked and talked a little not of their chances of making conroy's camp but of baked pork and beans fried steak and onions and enormous boiled puddings smothered in butter and brown sugar then they slept for some hours when the fire died down mary came floundering in and lay down beside them so they did not feel the growing cold as soon as they should when they woke they were half frozen and savage with hunger there were still red coals under the ashes so they revived the fire smoked and got themselves thoroughly warm then with belts deeply drawn in they resumed their journey in dogged silence according to the silent calculation of each the camp was still so far ahead that the odds were all against their gaining it but they did not trouble to compare their calculations or their hopes toward evening long jackson began to go to pieces badly he had a great frame and immense muscular power but being gaunt and stringy he had no reserves of fat in his hard tissues to draw upon in such an emergency as this in warm weather his endurance would have been no doubt equal to brannigan's now the need of fuel for the inner fire was destroying him the enforced rests became more and more frequent at last he grunted i'm the lame duck of this here outfit tom you'd better push on being so much fresher'n me and get the boys from the camp to come back for me brannigan laughed derisively ha and find ye in cold storage long you'd be no manner of use to your friends that way you wouldn't be worth coming back for jackson chuckled feebly and dropped the subject knowing he was a fool to have raised it he felt it was good of Brannigan not to have resented the suggestion as an insult. "'Reach me a bunch of them birch twigs of Mary's,' he said. Having chewed a few mouthfuls and spat them out, he got up out of the snow and plunged on with a burst of new determination. "'That's where Mary's got the bulge on us,' remarked Brannigan. "'If we could live on birch brows now—' i'd be so proud i wouldn't call the king my uncle if mary wasn't our pard now said jackson we'd be all right 
I'm that hungry I'd eat her as she stands, hair and all. Responding to a certain yearning note in Jackson's voice, Mary rubbed her long muzzle against him affectionately and nibbled softly at his sleeve. Brannigan flushed. He was angry because his partner had voiced a thought which he had been at pains to banish from his own consciousness. If it hadn't been for Mary, we wouldn't be alive now, he said sternly. She kept us from freezing. Oh, you needn't get crusty over what I've said, Tom, replied Jackson, rubbing the long brown ears tenderly. Mary's just as much my partner as she is yourn, and I ain't no cannibal. We'll see this thing through with Mary on the square, you bet. But if it wasn't Mary, that's all I say. Right ye are, Long, said Brannigan, quite mollified. But later in the day, as he glanced at his partner's drawn, sallow white face, Brannigan's heart misgave him. He loved the confiding Mary quite absurdly. But after all, as he reminded himself, she was only a little moose cow, while Long Jackson was a Christian and his partner. His perspective straightened itself out. At last, with a heavy heart, he returned to the subject. "'Ye was right, Long,' he said. "'If we don't make Conroy's camp pretty soon, we'll have to—well, it'll be up to Mary, poor Mary. But after all, she's only a little moose cow, and I'm sure she'd be proud if she could understand.' But Jackson was indignant as he went laboring on, leaning upon Mary's powerful shoulder. "'Not much,' he snorted feebly. "'There ain't gonna be no killin' of Mary on my account, and don't you forget it. Couldn't do no good, for I couldn't take a sliver of her. Not if I was dying, and it would just be unpleasant for Mary.' Brannigan drew a breath of relief for this meant at least a postponement of the unhappy hour. "'Just as you like, Long,' he grunted. But he clenched his teeth on the resolution that, the moment his partner should become too weak for effective protest, Mary should promptly come to the rescue. After all, whatever Mary's own opinion on the subject, it would be an end altogether worthy of her. He drove the whole rabble of whimsical fancies through his mind, and he labored resolutely onward through the snow. But his mittened hand went out continuously to caress Mary's ears, pleading pardon for the treason which it planned. The midwinter dark fell early, and fell with peculiar blackness on Jackson's half-fainting eyes. He was now leaning on Mary's shoulders with a heaviness which that young person began to find irksome. She grunted complainingly at times, and made good-natured attempts to shake him off. But she had been well-trained, and Brannigan's voice from time to time kept her from revolt. Brannigan was now watching his partner narrowly in the gloom, noting his movements and the droop of his head, since he could no longer make much of his face. He was beginning to feel with heavy heart that the end of poor Mary's simple and blameless career was very close at hand. He was busily hardening his heart with forced frivolities. He felt his long knife. He slipped his mittens into his pocket, that his stroke might be sure, swift, and painless, 
but his fingers shook a little with strong distaste. Then his eyes, glancing ahead, caught a gleam of yellow light through the tree trunks. He looked again to reassure himself and calmly pulled on his mittens. Mary, he said, you've lost the chance of your life. You ain't going to be no hero after all. What are you grunting about, Tom? demanded Jackson dully, aroused by the ring in his partner's voice. There's Conroy's camp right ahead, cried Brannigan. Then he fell to shouting and yelling for help. Jackson straightened himself up, opened his eyes wide, saw the light, and the sudden increase of it as the camp door was flung open, heard answering shouts, and collapsed, sprawling on Mary's back. He had kept going for the last few hours on his naked nerve. It was food Long Jackson wanted, food and sleep, and on the following day he was himself again. At dinner, beside the long plank table built down the middle of the camp, he and Brannigan devoured boiled beans and salt pork and stewed dried apples, gulped down tins of black tea, and jointly narrated their experience to the interested choppers and teamsters, while Mary, shut up in the stables, munched hay comfortably and wondered what had become of her partners. They were big-boned, big-hearted children, these men of the New Brunswick lumber camps, quick in quarrel, quick in sentiment, but cool and close-lipped in the face of emergency. The boss of the camp, however, was of a different type, a driving, hard-eyed westerner, accustomed to the control of the lumber gangs of mixed races, and his heart was as rough as his tongue. In a lull in the talk, he said suddenly to the visitors, "'We're about sick of salt pork in this camp, mates, and the fresh beef ain't been sent out from the settlement yet. Gone's been too heavy.' The fat young moose critter yarn will come in mighty handy just now. What do you want for her as she stands? Long Jackson set down his tin of tea with a bump and looked at the speaker curiously. But Brannigan thought it was a joke and laughed. Ha! <laughs> Cow moose comes high in New Brunswick, Mr. Clancy, he said pleasantly, as he must have been here long enough to know. Oh, that's right, answered the boss. But there ain't a game warden within a hundred miles of this camp, and I'd risk it if there was. What'll you take? Brannigan saw that the proposition was a serious one, and his face stiffened. Where Mary's concerned, he said, speaking with slow precision, I guess me and my partner here's all the game wardens that's required. It's closed season all year round for Mary, and she ain't for sale at any price. There was a moment's silence, broken only by a shuffle of tin plates on the table. Then Long Jackson said, And that's a fact, Mr. Clancy. The boss made a noise of impatience between his teeth. He was not used to being opposed, but he could not instantly forget that these visitors were his guests. Well, he said, there ain't no property right in a moose, anyhow. We think there be, replied Brannigan. And we know that that there little moose cows and not for sale at no price whatsoever. The boss was beginning to get angry at this incomprehensible attitude of his guests. 
There ain't no property rights, I tell you, in any wild critter of these here woods. This critter's in my stables, and I could just take her, seeing as my hands need her, without no talk of paying for the privilege. But you two boys has been burnt out and in hard luck, so I'll give you the price of a good beef for the critter. Ye can take it or leave it, but I'm going to kind of requisition that critter. As he spoke, he rose from his seat, as if to go and carry out his purpose on the instant. There had already been growls of protest from the men of the camp, who understood, as he could not, the sentiment of their guests, but he gave no heed to it. His seat was furthest from the door, but before he had taken two strides, Long Jackson was at the door and had snatched up a heavy steel-shod peavy. Having not yet quite recovered, he was still a bit excitable for a woodsman. "'Damn you, Jim Clancy, none of your butcherin!' he shouted. Clancy sprang forward with an oath, but right in his path rose Brannigan, quiet and cold. "'He'd better hold on, Mr. Clancy,' he said, "'and think it over. "'It's that little moose critter what's just seen us through, "'and I guess we'll see her through, too, Jackson and me.' "'His tone and manner were civility itself, "'but his big, lean fist was clenched till the knuckles went white. "'Clancy paused. "'He was entirely fearless, whether it were a fight or a logjam.' But he was no fool, and his vocation forced him to think quickly. He realized suddenly that in the temper of his visitors there was a resolution which would balk at nothing. It would do him no good to have killing in the camp, even if he were not himself the victim. All this he saw at one thought, in the fraction of a flash. He saw also that his men would be against him. He choked back his wrath and cast about for words to save his face, and here one of the choppers came tactfully to his aid. "'We ain't wantin' fresh meat so bad as all that, Mr. Clancy,' he suggested with a grin. "'Guess we'd rather wait for the beef.' "'Aye, aye,' chimed in several voices pacifically. Clancy pulled himself together and spoke lightly. "'I suppose you're right, lads.' "'and it was for your own feed I was thinking of. "'If you're satisfied, I must be. "'And I was wrong, of course, to treat our visitors so rough "'and try to force any kind of bargain on them. "'I ax their pardon.' "'Taking the pardon for granted, he went back to his seat. "'Brannigan, who had never lost grip of himself for a moment, "'sat down with a good-natured grin.' A murmur of satisfaction went round the table, and knives once more clattered on tin plates. Long Jackson, by the door, hesitated and glared piercingly at the boss, who refrained from noticing. At length he set down his weapon and came back to the table. In a minute or two his appetite returned, and he could resume his meal. Out in the barn, in the smell of hay and horses, Mary lay tranquilly waving her ears, staring at her unfamiliar company, and chewing her comfortable cud, untroubled with any kind of intuitions of the fate which had twice within the last few hours so narrowly passed her by. End of Brannigan's Mary Recording by Roeg 11
End of Hoof and Claw by Charles Roberts